You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing our study in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Uh, The Lord knew what we would be preaching today. We didn't exactly try to put a baptism on Ephesians chapter 4, but he he knew that this was set up perfectly uh, because uh, we just witnessed a God-given illustration of what we are going to be studying today. The, the illustration that God actually gave us. So like a lot of times I'll open uh, my sermon with an illustration, right? Well, this one was actually opened by God himself because he wrote the best illustration that we could have, right? In baptism, a person is, is declaring that they have died with Christ, that they have been risen again with, raised again with him. And that's the the Spirit-inspired illustration that God gave us. Um, But let me just stretch that illustration just a step further for you. I don't think I'm going outside the boundaries here at all, uh, but I do want you to understand this is not the Spirit-inspired version of that, right? This is the Pastor Ben. I think it's still accurate. A, A person gets into the baptismal waters wearing one set of clothes that's appropriate for going underwater, right? And uh, once they come out, they have to go change, especially today when the water's freezing. And the clothes that they quote-unquote were dyed and buried in are no longer suitable to carry out the rest of the day. You tracking? And so that's how it is with the Christian life. We, We die to our old self. We rise to our new self in our initial conversion. That is real. That is a spiritual reality. But then we still have clothes that we need to take off and put on. We have to put off the clothes of the old self and put on the clothes of the new self as we live out the rest of our life in Christ. And so that is the Christian life. Listen, that is the Christian life. Life. We die to our old self and rise to our new self again and again and again. And it's the reality that we're going to see as we continue through our study in Ephesians 4 today. There's our big idea for the day. Uh, Put off your old life in the world and put on your new life in the body of Christ. Put off your old life in the world and put on your new life in the body of Christ. As a church, we have been studying through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we are uh, currently in the second half of Paul's letter here. Uh, This is the part where Paul is applying all of this deep theology that he laid out in the first half of the book. It's not separate from the first half, it's it's the application of the first half. And so in the first half, he showed us this big cosmic vision that God has for his church, that it's so much more than we typically think of when we think of, oh, I'm going to go to church this morning and I'm going to file into a chair and I'm going to listen to somebody talk for an hour and all this kind of stuff. It's so much bigger. It's reaching to the heavenly places. And he's saying, okay, now live it out. 
Now live it out. Here's how you live it out. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, live consistently with your spiritual reality. That's what's driving Paul's instruction to put off your old life in the world and put on your new life in the body of Christ. And so let's see it in the text itself today in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may be good, give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Today, from these verses, we're going to look at four parts of putting off and putting on. Four parts of putting off and putting on. And the first is this. Uh, renounce your old self. We have to renounce our old self. Our old life. Look at verse 17 and see it right there in the text. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, now we've already established that this book was written to a church that had a lot of people who were ethnically, uh, culturally Gentiles. Remember, uh, a Gentile is someone who is not ethnically Jewish. Uh, sometimes the Bible calls the Gentiles the, the nations. It's an ethnic concept, but listen, it's also a religious concept, right? Because the Gentiles, the nations, were those who worshipped anyone, who anyone but the one true God. They were those who were given over by the Lord to worship and be ruled by false gods that we would typically refer to as demons. And that used to be the people in these churches reading this letter. But God rescued them from all that. That's what Paul described in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to the devil, to Satan. 
But God made them alive together with Christ by grace through faith. And so they are no longer Gentiles according to the flesh as their primary identifying factor. If you've been here for this study with us, you might also remember from chapter 2 that that God is doing a new thing in the present age, that he has brought the Gentiles into a new people along with the Jews. He's created something new in Christ. In place of Jew and Gentile, he's made one new man, a a whole new people group that that is simply described as in Christ. The, The assembly of Christ that we would call the church. And so in chapter 3, Paul called this inclusion of the Gentiles into into the full inheritance that was offered to Israel. He called this inclusion a mystery that was hidden for ages past. All throughout the Old Testament, it was was there, but it was hidden. And, And God had purposefully commissioned Paul to reveal it. And that's what we actually have in Paul's letters, and especially in the book of Ephesians. Remember also from chapter 3 that this is the thing that that forces the demons to look at the church and acknowledge that's the wisdom of God on display right there. We can't argue with that. Remember, the church is God's trophy case of his victory against the, what what do they call the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Those who have charge over the nations, the gods of the nations in the heavenly realms. And so if God has made the nations a part of his people, then, then what has he done? He's, he's defeated those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and he has used what used to be theirs to now prove his victory. He, they used to control the nations, but now they don't get to anymore because they're part of the people of God. God has taken the Gentiles out of the nations those who believe in him at least. And he's made them citizens together with the saints. And that's the spiritual reality for every true believer in Jesus Christ, that we are no longer primarily citizens of a worldly society. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Paul wrote in chapter 2, so then you are no longer Strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so as we talk about putting off and putting on, don't miss the context in which this kind of spiritual growth happens. It happens as a part of our relationship to the church, specifically through the local church. We're going to talk about this a lot today. That you cannot apply the New Testament at all, especially the book of Ephesians, without a rock-solid commitment and relationship with the local church. We're taken out of the world and made a part of another identity group, which is called the church. Which means that there are some old ways of living that are natural to us, that that feed our natural inclinations and desires that don't belong to our new citizenship, to our new way of living. So did you know that in order to become a citizen in the United States, you need to renounce your former country as having sovereignty over you? Did you know that? Let me read it from the 
the oath that you need to take when you become a, a, a citizen. You, you say, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Now, listen. Most Americans probably wouldn't understand how to like understand, you know, understand that sentence. Like the grammar is so crazy, and then we expect like people who have the second language to understand that. We're, we're interesting people. <laughs> but basically, you're saying all former rulers over me, all former laws and customs that I used to abide by, don't have control anymore. I don't answer to them because I am a citizen of the United States of America. And so if you came from a country where it was okay to kill someone if they took your chicken, and you try to do that in the United States, and you say, well, why are you upset with me? I always used to kill people for taking my chickens. I, I, that's what was true of my old country. I like their laws better, so I'm just going to follow their laws. Guess what? You're going to go to jail. The U.S. doesn't allow divided loyalties among its citizens. And the same is true with Christ. When we come to Christ in, in faith and we recognize that He is the victorious Savior King, we are called to renounce the ways of the nations in which we once walked. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do because you are no longer identified as a Gentile. We are part of a new culture, a new identity that is in Christ. We are called to walk consistent with our new citizenship that is a part of His kingdom. And so that should cause us to ask then, first of all, uh, what ways did the Gentiles walk that we need to renounce? That, that, that's important and you're going to see why in a minute. But Paul says that, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Here's the summary statement. In the futility of their minds. In the futility of their minds. Paul is saying that the world has a mindset. There is a way of thinking. A pattern of thinking. And that mindset is what? Futile. It's meaningless. It's empty. It doesn't mean they're unintelligent. It means that it's not going where God wants it to go. It's not fulfilling the purpose for which they were created. Why is it futile? Because they are missing the big picture. They're, they're missing the point of life itself. And Paul explains that this futile thinking looks like this. They're, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality. Whatever feels good, whatever pleases their senses, that's what they go for. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. To say it in a word, they are godless. They're godless. That's not to say that they don't have any gods. It's to say that they are missing the one true God as He is revealed in Jesus Christ. They, they only did what seemed right in their own eyes. And that sense of right and wrong was ignorant of the true source of right and wrong, God Himself. You don't have morality if, unless you have an absolute standard which is decided by God Himself. 
They were not just ignorant. The text says they were hardened. In our sin, none of us actually want God. None of us are inclined toward God naturally. We sometimes want a version of God that we could create on our own and that we can manipulate and control, but we don't want God. The nature of sin is to try to be like God without God. It's to try to create a concept of God that allows me to be in the driver's seat. And that's the nature that defines the the nations. Apart from God, the nations have become callous. They don't feel a sense of holy, reverent fear toward their Creator. They don't have a heart to please Him or to deny their natural impulses in favor of what is good and what is right. They don't have a heart that feels conviction when faced with the holiness of the perfect God. They only want what feels good. And that's all of us apart from Christ, right? Like if left to your own devices, you want what feels good, right? Ephesians 2, Paul says that we all once walked this way. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we must no longer walk this way. And so let me ask you in as simple a way as I possibly can. Have you renounced your old self? Have you renounced your old self? Have you renounced your old self? Have you said, I I don't want anything to do with that anymore? Have you come to that place of of complete surrender that says, I I know I can't live for you on my own, Jesus, but I sure don't want to live without you. Are you able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the heart of the matter. That's what it it means to be a Christian. It's not not, were you on a membership roster for the majority of your life at a church. God's not looking at that. It's not, have you started to try to become a better person, self-improvement? That's not the gospel. It's not, have you been a model U.S. citizen and stood up for God, family, and country? That's not his priority. The question is, has your old self died? Have you renounced your former allegiances and your former way of life and then gone all in with Christ? There is no salvation, there is no life in Christ without renouncing your old self. And if you've never done that, you need to do that today. Don't allow the fact that, but I've always claimed to be a Christian. And what are people going to think of me if I now say I'm going to renounce my old self? Like, what? Don't allow that to get in the way. Got to renounce your old self. It's the gateway to true freedom and life. And I love that Paul is able to write to these churches and say, yeah, that was you but it's not you anymore. He's able to have a reasonable confidence that most of the people in these churches were taught well and understood that there's a difference between the people of God and the rest of the world. Why? 
because he knew how they were taught. He knew how they were taught. Look at verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. I love that verse. That is not the way you learned Christ. I know how I taught you. It's like a parent saying to their older child, I know that's not the way I raised you. And remember, uh, Paul spent two years planting the church in Ephesus. He spent time with them, establishing them in the teaching. And he gave them the pattern of teaching to establish others. But now, listen, it's been eight to ten years since he's been there. And some people may have come to the faith and been discipled by others since he was there that he doesn't know. And even more, this this letter was probably circulated beyond Ephesus to churches in the surrounding region of Lycus Valley that that he has never been to. Churches like Colossae and Laodicea. And, And so Paul doesn't want to make any assumptions. And so he clarifies how they should have learned Christ. Look at it again. Assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful, through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're looking at four parts of putting off and putting on. First, renounce your old self. Second, renew your mindset. Renew your mindset. Paul is recognizing that there is a way that Christ is taught that is true, and there is a way that Christ is taught that is false. There is a way to sound like you are proclaiming Jesus and not really proclaim Jesus. In the early church, this could have been uh, like the circumcision party, who was all about like external conformity to a set of rules that they had created that were part of the Old Testament uh, religious teachings, and, and they just kind of sprinkled a little Jesus in on that. There was also clearly false teachers in the, old, in the early church who told people what they wanted to hear. Paul wrote to Timothy that there were false teachers who liked to tickle the ears of their listeners. Just tell them what they want to hear. Make them feel good and happy and satisfied so that they walk out of church on cloud nine. And really, that was for their own selfish gain. They basically taught people to seek after sensual desires, and that's what they modeled too, using the grace of Jesus as an excuse. And the same is true today. On the one hand, you have religious groups who claim Jesus, but they're really concerned with just Conform to our set of rules. That it's the rules that get lifted up above the, the Scriptures. On the other hand, you have preachers who refuse to even use the word sin because it might offend some people and keep them from giving to their ministry. And so Paul wants to assume that they've been taught Jesus properly, but he realizes he can't fully assume that. He needs to clarify some things. And, and listen, I think that's instructive for us. We... We need to believe the best about people in our lives who claim to be believers, right? Like take them at their word and then hold them to their word. Believe the best about people who claim to be believers and then clarify the gospel with them. Here's a great question to ask in that. Like, what has Jesus been doing in your life recently? You claim to be a believer? Awesome, let's celebrate that. What's he been doing in your life? Tell me about your relationship with him. 
Don't take it for granted that they were taught thoroughly or received that teaching thoroughly. And so here's how Paul clarified the gospel truth. To believe the truth about Jesus is to put off the old self. Your old sin nature, who you are apart from Christ, all of the the motivations and desires that don't align with Christ, all of the thought patterns that don't conform to Him, all of the activities and actions that are clearly sinful, you put them off. Like changing your wet baptismal clothes. And then you put on the new self. Notice how Paul describes the new self. It is, it is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, does that make you think of any particular part of the Bible? Like, like maybe the very first chapters of the Bible, like Genesis 1, to 1 and 2, where God created Adam and Eve in a garden. He said in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then, and then what happened? They, they sinned, right? And they marred the image of God. And it was, it was marred almost beyond recognition. It was there, right? But it was marred. It was tainted. True righteousness and holiness were lost. They were, they were no longer able to reflect God as they ought. And listen, the new self, what Jesus is doing in our lives is the restoration of the image of God in his people. It's the new humanity that God is creating in Christ. Christ is the second Adam, right? And in him we get to return to the righteousness and holiness of Adam and Eve that they experienced before the fall. And so that's what Jesus wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in your church. He's taking us back to the garden, friends. That's the Part of the motivation for spiritual growth, all that was lost in the garden because of our sin is being restored in us through Jesus Christ. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome, Pastor Ben. I would, I would love to go back to the Garden of Eden where I don't have to deal with sin anymore. In fact, can we just fast forward to heaven where that's true? But, but that's not the real world in which I live. I, I try to do things the right way. I try to go for holiness and righteousness, but I mess up all the time. The, the old self doesn't feel so old. It doesn't feel like distant history to me. It, it feels honestly pretty close and pretty present. So how can I gain some traction here? Notice how Paul says this happens. He says we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. It's a process of renewal of the mind. It all comes back to how we think. Remember verse 17, you must no longer walk in the futility of your minds, implying that they once walked that way, right? You must no longer do that. You once did, but now you must not. The, the old self was marked by a futility of a mind. The, the spirit of their mind was futile because they were missing the key. And the new self has the Holy Spirit to inform the mind and to change the mind. And we must be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We must allow the truth that we've been given, a new nature, to drive us forward to a new way of thinking and living. 
We must constantly set our minds on Christ and what He has done so that we can live in a way that is consistent with our spiritual reality in Christ. I've heard it said this way before, uh, nothing is different until you think differently. Nothing is different until you think differently. Our being in Christ must drive our thinking because our thinking drives our doing. Our being in Christ must drive our thinking because our thinking drives our doing. And so long as you think like a Gentile, you're going to live like a Gentile. When you think like someone who is in Christ, you're going to start living like someone who is in Christ. That's why reading the Word and setting our mind on its truth is so important because we're learning to think a different way. We're learning to think about the truth that is in Christ. We're, we're actually learning to think like God thinks and we're seeing things from God's perspective and we're hearing the things that are God, on God's heart and nothing is different unless you think differently. That's the essence of true repentance. Repentance, what does it mean? It means a change of the mind. And so follow the chain of events here. The, the change in our being that we have died and we have been raised with Christ must lead to a change in our thinking that, that we think according to the truth that is in Christ, which must lead to a change in our doing that we will do the actions that Christ would do. Changing our being leads to a change in our thinking, which leads to a change in our doing. It, it always follows that process. Being, thinking, doing. And so what drives your thinking? Just think back to your previous week. What, dri what was driving your thinking? What was going through your head all week long? What, what thoughts did you dwell on as you were driving your car down the road? As you were waking up early in the morning? What thoughts does your mind return to when you have a moment to rest? Is it the glorious truths of God? Or the depraved things that please your flesh? When you're faced with a big life choice, what, what factors influence that decision for you? Are, are you thinking, all right, what's going to feel best? What's going to benefit me the most? What, what, what's going to please the people around me and just keep everybody happy around me? Maybe it's in your family or your, your group of friends and I just got to appease everyone. Or is it a sense of conviction? This is what God wants me to do. This is what God wants. This is what's going to please the Lord. This is what's closest to His heart. It has to come back to our reading and knowing God's Word, but, but not just reading it, like letting it shape us. Letting it change the way that we think. And, and when you make it your constant, desperate prayer, Lord, I'm reading this in Your Word. Make this to be true of me. God, I see you. I want to see you in my life. Produce this in me as I walk by your Holy Spirit. That's when change starts to happen. A change in our being leads to a change in our thinking, which leads to a change in our doing. Nothing is different until you think differently. 
But what does that change actually look like? What practical effect will that actually have in our lives? That's where Paul takes us next. Three essential, uh, four parts, I'm sorry, four parts of putting off and putting on. Uh, renounce your old self. Renew your mindset. Third, replace your actions. Replace your actions. Notice Paul starts with the issue of truth, right? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Do you see the put off and the put on? See, if you, if you just agree in theory with God's word, then you have not renewed your mind. And you have not applied the, the truth of, of Christ's death and resurrection. Out, out of the renewal of your mind, you must replace your actions. And that starts by replacing falsehood with speaking truth. If change comes through the renewing of our mind, then this is of first importance. We have to be honest about what's going on inside of us, don't we? We can't try to lie about it and cover it up and hide it and, and put on our Sunday best and pretend like there's nothing going on inside of us. That there's no sin in our hearts. That we never struggle with anything. We also have to be honest with others about the truth that's in Jesus Christ, right? We talked about this last week, that, that the primary way that the body grows is by speaking the truth in love. I wrote a two-part blog post on our website about that this week if you want to go back and, and look at that again. Because it's of utmost importance that the truth of Jesus must acknowledge all the contours of the gospel. It's not just hammering people over the head with truth. It's, it's, it's acknowledging that the truth of Jesus follows the contours of the gospel. The holiness of our Creator God. The, the fallen nature of man and our sin. We've got to be honest about the redemption that we all need in Jesus Christ and the hope of our future glory. And that truth must be shared in love. Not, not the love of the world as it defines it, but the love that is defined in the Bible. Like Think 1 Corinthians 13. Truth must be shared in patience and kindness and without envy or boasting or arrogance. And it should be clear by now, but don't overlook this. Uh, this kind of truth is encountered in community. In community, within the local church, we are to speak the truth with our neighbor, specifically with those who are in close proximity to us in the church. What does Paul say? He says, for we are members one of another. We are members one of another. Can you say that about yourself with other believers in the church? That your walk with Jesus is impacted by their walk with Jesus. And your walk with Jesus impacts others' walk with Jesus. And you're living in that kind of close relationship. How am I going to break out of the way that I always think? How am I going to actually renew my mind when, when I, I'm prone to think this way? Well, it certainly helps when others are speaking the truth to me. Anybody else need somebody else speaking the truth to you sometimes? Yeah, thank you. Better leaders certainly are on that. I need, I need people showing me my blind spots. I, I need people showing me how my thinking wasn't lining up with Jesus. 
And we're to be involved in one another's lives to the degree that we're helping others apply God's word in real life situations. That's what the church is all about. Again, it's impossible to apply these verses as a Lone Ranger Christian. We are, as believers, members one of another. Your spiritual growth affects me. My spiritual growth affects you. And so we speak the truth in love to one another. Next, we replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, now that might seem really weird to us. Like, Why is Paul telling me to be angry? I mean, some of us are like, yes, Paul is telling me to be angry. <laughs> but he's quoting Psalm 4, verse 4, where David is charging his enemies, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In other words, deal with your anger in a righteous way. Don't come after God's anointed. Don't attack the godly. That's what the enemies were doing to David. They weren't dealing with their anger in a proper way. It's also possible in Psalm 4 that the better translation is tremble in fear and do not sin. In other words, fear God. And if we're going to have righteous anger, that's certainly where it starts, right? The fear of the Lord. And there's a righteous trembling that fears God and longs for His righteousness. And there's a sinful anger that is willing to do unrighteous things to appease the flesh. Now, here's my problem. I don't know about you. But my problem is that I often think that my sinful anger is righteous anger. Anybody else with that? Like, okay. I like to think that I'm angry because... I'm right, and the other person is wrong. That's why I'm angry. <laughs> but then I'm willing to act out in anger in ways that don't honor God, and I all of a sudden become unright. <laughs> and I prove that my anger really wasn't righteous after all. It was just that my way got offended. And so how do I replace sinful anger with righteous anger? Well, Paul says I need to do it quickly. I can't let it fester. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Psalm 4 says, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. That's really good. Be, be silent until you sort it out whether your, sinful, your anger is sinful or righteous or not. I'm real bad at that, by the way. We need to bring our anger to the Lord and either let Him deal with it or seek His way that He wants us to deal with it in some righteous expression of anger. Right? Like anger, you could be fired up about some sin that went on. You, you might need to go and you might need to go deal with that, right? And that's righteous anger. But what do we have to be careful of? Why is this so important? Because, because sinful anger is an opportunity for the devil. And if we keep this in the context of the whole book, remember, keep it in the context of the whole book. It's, it's not just an opportunity for the devil in your own heart, although that would be true, right? But it's an opportunity for the devil in the whole church. It's a chance for him to undermine the unity that displays the wisdom and victory of God over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
And so how many local churches or church relationships have been wrecked because we've allowed sinful anger to unleash? Or maybe we went the passive-aggressive way and let our anger turn into bitterness, which turns into malice and gossip and slander and grows like a cancer among the people of God. The enemy, the deceiver, rejoices when that thing happens. But we are in Christ. And our anger does not need to control us. We, we can go to Him as the one who has authority above all and can deal with it. Can deal with people in their sin when they need to be corrected. He can, he can protect you. He can, he can hold on to you. So replace falsehood, replace anger, now this. Replace stealing with generous work. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now maybe you think like, whew, a little break here. I might struggle with honesty and anger, but I don't, I don't steal things, right? But notice the opposite of stealing, right? Honest work with his own hands. Honest work with his own hands. So anything that is not honest work is stealing. That could be laziness and just, I'm not going to go to work at all. That could be stealing from the government, tax evasion. That could be stealing from your employer, not, not actually working when you say you're working. I read a post from the Quarryville Message Board this week about somebody who hired a local handyman, and he, would, he said that he would work for $200 a day. But as the days went on, the days got shorter and shorter and shorter, and his work got shoddier and shoddier and shoddier until he just abandoned the job altogether. And she was just warning people, like, don't hire this guy. That, that's stealing. That's stealing. And again, notice, notice the result of the honest work, the opposite, that, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so if we're not using our resources to care for the people around us, if we're not showing genuine generosity and hospitality, then listen, we're still stealing. This is about the church again, right? The, the money that you make at work is not so that you can hoard it all and live out the American dream just like the Gentiles do. Your money is so that you can share with anyone in need. Stealing is about selfishness. God's call to work is about generosity and stewardship. And your money that you make through your job is to be invested in the kingdom purposes of God because that's where our citizenship is found. But that requires renouncing the old self, renewing your mind, then replacing your actions. Like we have to go through the whole step process. And so we're going to replace falsehood. We're going to replace sinful anger. We're going to replace stealing. Now this, replace corrupting talk with encouragement. Place corrupting talk with encouragement. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The word for corrupting here is like a disease or a, a, a bug that would rot out an apple or a piece of fruit or, or, or maybe a, a bacteria that would rot a piece of fish if it sat outside for too long without, without preservatives. And how often are the words that come out of our mouths corrupting to those who hear? How, do, how often do they lead people to dwell on things that are unhelpful or unhopeful? How often do they corrupt people's thinking about someone else? 
How often do they corrupt our hearts and set our minds on earthly things rather than godly things? Just the things that we talk about that are of trivial value. Kids, how often do your words with your siblings or at school help others see the grace of Jesus? Every time we're tempted to say something that would corrupt those who hear, we should think, all right, this is an opportunity to speak a gracious word instead. Don't just put it off, put it on. How can I build up the body rather than tearing it down? Again, notice our corrupt talk isn't about us, only it's, it's, it has effects on the whole body of Christ. It has effects on everyone who hears. And so Paul has made this idea of suffering of, I'm sorry, this idea of putting off and putting on very practical with a few examples, and he then summarizes it with a list that's in verse 31. We're going to come back to verse 30 in just a moment. Don't think I'm just skipping it. But he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, we must replace animosity with grace. Replace animosity with grace. This is a summary statement. He's, he's amplifying what he said earlier about sinful words and sinful anger and, and about malice, which is, which is an action of hatred against a person like stealing would be. And he says, put all that stuff away. There, there is nothing that will extinguish the flame of the Holy Spirit's work in a church like bitterness and anger and animosity. And so we must put on grace, the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ, the, the kindness that we have received in place of wrath, the tender heartedness instead of the callous heart of the Gentiles. Open up your heart to Christ and to His people. And that's going to require forgiving one another. Because we're all in a process of putting off and putting on, aren't we? And we're in this together, and so we're going to come up against some things where we're going to sin against each other. You don't have to tell somebody to forgive if they haven't experienced the sin against them. So forgive one another. As God in Christ forgave you, so remember that there's nothing that anyone has ever done to you that could possibly be worse than your offense against an infinitely holy God. And God forgave you in Christ. That's how you forgive. Renounce the old self. Renew your mind. Replace your actions. And listen, this, this is a really good thing. Like, like This isn't just like, Repent, you stinking sinners! It's not like, oh, i got to repent. This is so hard. We, we cleaned out our basement re recently. And that involved a, a lot of garbage bags coming up. At the same time, we cleaned up all of the backyard stuff. And that involves some more garbage bags. And at the same time, I forgot to take the trash out one week. And, and so in addition to just the normal refuse that we create as a, as a family of five, it, it took me, it's taking me at least three weeks to go through all of this. We still have a few trash bags left, and, and by the grace of God, at Lord willing, he's going to remind me to take out the garbage on Thursday. 
Yeah, I'll accept a text or two to remind me. But there is nothing, there is nothing, listen, there is nothing like the feeling of the garbage truck coming and getting rid of all of your waste and all of your filth and knowing that it is gone. And this, this week I get to celebrate it. Katie and I are probably going to do a little happy dance on Thursday night, right? And so what's being offered to you when Paul says, put it all away, is this idea that our refuse, our filth, our junk, it's gone. We have to have it carried away. Get rid of it. Do you want that? Maybe you're like, but I've tried. I've tried to renounce my old self. I've renewed my mind. I'm in the word. I've replaced my actions and I've, I've seen some growth, but, but there's a lot of trash bags left and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of my sin. I'm grieved by it. What can I do? I want you to know that if you are grieved by your sin this morning, you are in good company. You are in the best company. Because the Holy Spirit grieves your sin too. Look at verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we're going to put off our old life in the world and put on our new life in Christ, we're going to have to relate to the Spirit. Relate to the Spirit. Notice I didn't just say rely on the Spirit. That's true. But I said relate to the Spirit. Why? Because grief is a word of relationship. Grief is a word of relationship. He's grieving an interruption in the relationship. He responds to sin by grieving. It's the same word of used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says that he was sorrowful when facing the cross. The, the Spirit grieves our sin. Notice he didn't say he's wrathful over our sin as believers. Wrath is not for the children of God, right? Notice it didn't say that He's writing us off in our sin. Notice it didn't say that He's leaving us because of our sin. No, no, no. He's grieving our sin. He's sorrowful over it. He's mourning the loss of intimacy and fellowship and relationship that sin brings between God and His people. I recently heard one of our GCC pastors, Robbie Simons, illustrate it this way. He said that the body describes our bodies and the church as a whole as a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians especially emphasizes the church as a whole as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is supposed to be in the center of that temple. He's supposed to be filling us with all of the fullness of God but when we invite sin in, he doesn't leave. He doesn't walk out the front door or the back door. He just stands over to the side. It's like, what's that doing here? What place does that have in my temple? I'm grieved. 
He's not yelling at us. He's mourning. He's wailing. He's not throwing a fit. He's saying, what does that falsehood have to do in my temple? What does that sinful anger have to do in my temple? What is that selfish stealing doing here? What's that, what's that corrupt speech entering this place for? This is a place of my worship. What's that animosity here for? He's not condemning, but he's grieving. And when he grieves, he convicts. Listen, the right way to right the way back to right relationship with him is to enter into his grief. It's to grieve along with him. To once again renounce your old self. Renounce it. State it. To renew your mind afresh. Holy Spirit, you are right. This is not consistent with my true identity of Christ, in Christ. I have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What in the world do I want to do with this filthy sin? Take the garbage out. And then our hearts are ready at that point to replace the actions. You've got to replace the actions, right? And that only happens... That only happens as we relate to the Holy Spirit. When we see that we are His temple and He is grieved by our sin and He is gracious to seal us together for the day of redemption. And so we get an opportunity even right now to relate to the Holy Spirit through prayer. right response to a sermon, any sermon, especially a sermon like this, is to go before the Lord and to ask Him to search your heart. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.